From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271 2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Just fine, thank you. How are you? Terrific, thanks. You know, when when people complain about the actions uh, of individuals in our day and time, and when they speak about people being uh, hopeless or helpless or, or certain things, I have a tendency once in a while to ask them, well, was he running around promoting the killing of Christians? <laughs> because... Somebody who was engaged in those kind of activities became one of the great saints uh, in the history of the church, huh? Yes. Uh, we're, we're coming up to, not uh, this week, but next week, the celebration of the conversion of St. Paul, which is basically the most famous conversion in the history of the church. And the whole problem of the conversion of St. Paul, which is also its glory in a way, is how quickly it's performed and how uh, instantaneously it's performed. Now, we, as you know, I've been pushing the fact that grace is a true change in your heart. A plus is added to your soul so that you no longer know as God knows and uh, as a man knows and uh, knows Love as man loves, but you know and love as God knows and loves now. Obviously, this is not something we can accomplish on our own. And we need a help given to our nature, not that's destructive of our nature, but that fulfills our nature and elevates us. Now, in the history of the church, there have been people who have been very much against the faith of Christ, who all of a sudden have experienced a spectacular conversion experience. Why and how does that happen? Well, like every form or every kind of new life or every sort of new um, experience a person has, uh, grace demands that there be a kind of preparation to receive it. You normally don't just receive it instantaneously. 
And that preparation is ongoing for a while. And its primary source, because grace is divine life, has to be in God. Now, we don't look on it that way. There are basically four movements to grace, and you can see this in the baptismal formula when we're baptized. First, you have God, which instills grace. You may be surprised I put that first. But God is always first. God gives an extraordinary effect of his love. This, in turn, turns us to God. Now, when we turn to God, it's like turning from one side of your, your left side to your right side. You have to turn away from the opposite, which would be a movement away from sin. And then the effect of that is the forgiveness of sins. Now, in time, we don't look on it that way, even though, of course, grace occurs in time, this kind of conversion. We look on forgiveness of sins first, but my forgiveness, of, uh, my desire for repentance can't cause grace in me. Only God can. So to experience metanoia, which is basically the turning from being converted to sin away from God, we have to convert to God away from sin, and God accomplishes that. In St. Paul's case, he accomplishes the, the prayer of St. Stephen, we believe. We believe that St. Stephen's prayer was the necessary means. Remember, because Stephen forgave him, and he, the Acts of the Apostles is very clear, that the people stoning Stephen piled up their coats at the foot of a man named Saul, who concurred in the act of killing. And St. Stephen's prayer, therefore, for intercession, was a necessary part of this process. And not only that, but God wants to show us how powerful his grace is. Because it's stated that Saul, who was a Pharisee, he says that himself in his letters, he also was a student, I believe, of Gamaliel, uh, which is one of the leading of the first people among the rabbis. He was very well-versed in the law, and he also had letters from the high priest to persecute the Christians in Antioch, I believe, and, and Damascus. And so, Saul breathing out threats, it's very clearly stated there that he's very much disposed against conversion. And yet, in this experience of the risen Lord, one experience, he converts. And after he converts, he goes to catechize himself Remember, he goes away. Nobody can find him for a number of years. And then when he comes back, he's fully catechized, so much so that he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, of course, not everybody experiences conversion like this. Some people have periods of preparation. In the case of adults, normally this is a catechesis which occurs before you uh, um, accept baptism. In the case of a baptized baby, it occurs after the baby has been baptized, up until they reach their majority. It takes a long time to be fully catechized as a Christian, if a person's open to it. Many people aren't today. They're baptized, but they're totally uncatechized.
Also, sometimes God takes an inordinately long amount of time. Probably the greatest example of this is St. Augustine, who you remember for 33 years kept trying to believe, and it just didn't come. And then also one day, even though he was intellectually convinced of Christianity, he had that experience in the garden with a little child who said, take up and read. And when he read the scriptures, he was converted by the passage which he read. Now, in Paul's case, it, this occurred instantaneously. Now, the catechesis, not necessarily, because he still had to find out more. But the actual acceptance of Jesus as the risen Lord, he experiences on the road to Damascus when he's blinded by the light. So therefore, I think for us, the most important thing is to realize that all of our conversions, whether they're instantaneous, whether there's children, whether there's adult, whatever they are, first of all, begin in God. God is always first. He gives the grace. Secondly, since grace is divine love, it means that each of us in his own way is loved by God. And just as a person who's teaching someone doesn't teach everybody exactly the same way, so God doesn't bring about the metanoia or the conversion of heart, which is necessary in its fullness in embracing baptism the same way for everybody. And thirdly, the actual embracing of baptism is the result of these four actions. So, do you renounce Satan? I do renounce Satan. Do you uh, renounce all his works? I do renounce them. That's the turning away from sin. Then remember you have, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? Then you have the turning to God with the actual profession of faith which you make and that we've been happy and blessed each of us to have experienced this whatever else may happen in our lives the fact that we've been baptized that we've been loved by God enough to experience conversion of heart either again as babies or as adults is something we should constantly thank God for and we have St. Paul's example to encourage us to this. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Grab one of these open phone lines on EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, tomorrow is the March for Life, and we've got a great item here at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's a stand-up for life with this Choose Life t-shirt. It's a navy blue t-shirt that has Choose Life in big letters on the front. And on the back of the shirt, it has 10 reasons to choose life. And um, 
you know, I, I usually would just pick a couple of these, but they're also outstanding. I'm going to just run through all 10 of them. The first one is because at conception, your baby's curly hair, green eyes, five foot six inch frame, and female gender have already been determined. Because at 21 days, her heart is beating. Because at 43 days, she has brain waves. At eight weeks, she has fingers and toes. At 10 weeks, she can feel pain. At 12 weeks, she can suck her thumb. At four months, she can listen to Mozart. At five months, she can dream. At seven months, she can recognize her mother's voice. And at nine months, you've got a friend for life. That's a Choose Life t-shirt available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's pre-shrunk, 100% cotton, and printed in the United States. And it's available in sizes small to 2X. And it's available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Nathan writes in, how do the Pope's changes to the catechism change our belief in the morality of the death penalty well and that's been tweaked right. that's been tweaked a couple times in the last two or yes three well that, it's the easy question to answer if you understand objects intention and circumstances which are, I have to, i'm actually giving a lecture in the parish here tonight and to my surprise no one in the parish had ever heard of objects intention and circumstances and they're trying to make judgments about these documents that are all based on them. Uh, you'll notice that Pope Francis didn't exactly say capital punishment was a sin. They obviously don't want it. They don't like it. They may even think it's barbaric. I don't know. But they did not say directly it was a sin. And the reason they didn't do that is because you can't. Uh, the catechism before it was revised, uh, and in this part they didn't revise, interestingly enough, says defines murder as the direct taking of an innocent human life. Now the key word there is innocent. And that was not changed in the new catechism. So obviously a capital murderer, especially if they're especially venal, someone like Charlie Manson, for instance, is not innocent. And as a result would not fall under the Fifth Commandment any more than a soldier or a policeman prosecuting war or defending someone on the street would fall under the Fifth Commandment because they're defending society from unjust aggression. So we have to be respectful of the Pope's teaching. We have to try to understand why he taught this to us. And I, I really think it's because they want to influence societies to do away with the death penalty, which is the, their perfect right. But they can't say that every Catholic has to embrace their opinion about the uh, possibility of a certain execution or they can't go to communion or they're in the state of sin. And in fact, they don't. Cardinal Ratzinger, as you know, who just died, Pope Benedict XVI, 
wrote a letter to Wilton Gregory and to McCarrick back during one of the presidential elections in maybe 2005 on the subject of communion for politicians who dissent from the church morally. And he was very clear that when it came to particular wars or particular executions, that it was perfectly possible for a Catholic to be in favor of those things and still go to communion. And that teaching wasn't really touched by what Pope Francis did when he changed the catechism. On the other hand, he said abortion and euthanasia, they're attacking innocent people, and as a result, they are always contrary to the Fifth Commandment. So I would say that we have to be respectful of our Pope's teaching and his desires to, in his mind, be more merciful, and especially when it came to the civil law, because I think that's what it was about, really. But we don't have to take this as normative for us in condemning all capital punishment that Catholics might participate in, again, any more than they could condemn all killing in war and all uh, law enforcement trying to enforce the law, even though it may mean the death of a perpetrator. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call with your questions for Father Brian Mullady. 833-288-3986. Uh, James says, The Church claims that God is unchangeable, but before the Incarnation... Jesus was only divine, therefore he did change. How do you explain that? Well, that's a famous old theological problem. Jesus didn't change, creation changed. Before, creation was related to God in nature, because we're all joined in by in nature, by sanctifying grace. Afterwards, there was a new relation which was a real relation from the point of view of creation to God, but only an ideal relation from the point of God. Now, that's what we think about it that way, because it's the only way we could conceive it to us, and that was that creation now related to God in person. So this involves no change in the second person of the Trinity. It involves a change in the way creation relates to the second person of the Trinity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Um, Richard says, was, what was the Catholic response to the Reformation? And he wants to know if you have any good resources for further study on this. The whole Reformation in four minutes? <laughs> um, look, uh, I wish I could remember the man's name, but there are, is actually some excellent references about this. And it's by a Lutheran historian who basically took up the... Uh, did, was doing research on Catholicism. He's still a Lutheran. He didn't convert to Catholicism. But he became very, very perturbed at what he considered to be what used to be known as the Black Legend, which uh, talked all about the Inquisition and the Crusades and all these things from a point of view that was um, 
very, very uh, uh, unhistorical, let's put it that way. He discovered it to be unhistorical. And so he wrote a whole series of books that are very well done. I'm trying to see if I can find them on my... Uh, uh, Kindle here, and of course I can't when I really need them. <laughs> but uh, he's a professor at Baylor. You can look up his stuff online, and uh, I think that you would benefit greatly from reading his books. It's um, and uh, yeah, there's quite a revival. He, Is it David Whitford? It, no, he's from Baylor, like I say. Yeah, so is, uh, so is David Whitford. I was there's quite a quite a uh, yeah several people. There are several faculty members at Baylor in the last several years that have become Catholic. Yes, well, he didn't, which is interesting. <laughs> and um, he basically, I, I think, my opinion, which I had formed, of course, before. Well, I'll just say what it is. I, I can't really know if I can characterize the whole Catholic position about the Reformation. But the way I look on it is this. The Reformation was uh, begun because of the corruption in the church. We had a terribly corrupt church. It was corrupt partially because from the Black Death, many clergymen were killed and the people that, that uh, took their place weren't really knowledgeable about the faith. And also, because of the Black Death, remember we had two papal courts, so and uh, both of them were trying to support themselves, and that's what began to sell um, uh, benefices, to sell offices in the church. Mm -hmm. And the sale of offices in the church and nepotism was something we suffered from a very long time where you just try to get your family members in to be your successors or whatever without any interest in whether they're religious people or not. And thirdly, uh, the whole concept of the Reformation basically made use of secular desires to take the property of the church. It's very clear in England with the dissolution of the monasteries that it was a land grab, basically. And when people found out the king wasn't going to support the church, the church owned the monasteries, especially owned about a third of England. And uh, they wanted the land, and they wanted the money from the monasteries. So they had treasures and that kind of thing. And it was very natural for them to salute these places, but they did so under the guise of reforming the religion. Now, the trouble was, as you know, Henry VIII was quite Catholic, but he wanted to be his own pope, basically. <laughs> but as far as the doctrine is concerned, he didn't want any doctrinal deviance. But as soon as he died, the ideas were very influenced by reformations of Germany and France and in England, and so you reach this point where everybody disagreed with everybody else, and every time they disagreed, they all formed their own church. So much so that Cranmer, 
uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, around the Council of Trent, wanted to call a pan-Protestant council to answer the Catholic Church's um, criticisms of the Reformation, but he couldn't even find that the reformers could agree on where to hold it. <laughs> so it was a very strange episode, and unfortunately got call, caught up in politics. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Plenty of time for your calls here on an open line Thursday. Amanda writes in, and she said, this is an easy one, Father. I'm not going to tax you too heavily on this question. But Amanda asks, what is the church's position on a person receiving the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin? The church's position is it's incompatible with the act of communion. And it has to do with the statement in St. Paul, I believe, or St. John, that he who eats and drinks the flesh of the blood and the, and the body and, and the blood of Christ um, unworthily eats and drinks his own condemnation. So you have to be prepared in order to receive communion. And unfortunately, many of these people uh, don't realize that. So you have to be in the state of grace to receive Christ in your soul. 833-288-EWTN, still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Is it true, Glenn asks, that God died on the cross, or was it just his human nature that died? Well, remember, there's a hypostatic union, an absolute union, in the incarnation between the person of the Word and his human nature. So you come up against what theology calls the problem of idioms. How do you translate the um, uh, idioms which are said to uh, about Christ um, and his divine nature and his human nature? And in some ways you can, and in some ways you can't. So you wouldn't say God for example, in his divine nature died on the cross, that's heretical because divine natures don't die. You can't say Christ in his human nature created the heavens and the earth because that's heretical. But if you're only speaking of the person of the word, then you can interchange the terms, which is what the communication of idioms means. You can interchange the terms freely and so it'd be perfectly uh, um, fitting to say God died on the cross, because God there would be referring to the person of the Word. And in fact, I know a professor who gave a test in a seminary where he asked the students if you could say God died on the cross, 
And most of them said no, and he was just appalled. <laughs> but of course God died on the cross. Now, not in his divine nature, but he certainly died in his human nature. So that's the solution to that. Uh, we head now to Springfield, Missouri. Mateo is a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Mateo, you're on with Father Milady. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, yes, so uh, I, was, uh, I was wondering if uh, we could explore a possibility of negotiating one's vocation with God. Let's say if someone sees, uh, uh, you know, certain, uh, let's say, signs or uh, circumstances uh, that lead one to a certain vocation, and then one struggles with it. Can can he negotiate uh, some changes to this vocation with God? <laughs> I don't. Uh, uh, I don't know in what sense you're using the word negotiate? Uh, you can't never uh, negotiate a vocation. What, in what sense do you mean that? Well, uh, well, let's say, uh, uh, let's say, uh, religious vocation to religious community or religious vocation to uh, more individual way, way of life. You mean, can you discern this vocation with when God? You, when you discern this vocation, this is correct. Yes, all right. Well, you look at various signs of what makes you think you have a vocation. So, for instance, when it comes to religious life, I taught in a seminary for diocesan priests, and many of them would come and, or some would come and say they thought they had a religious vocation. So I'd say, well, what are the signs anyway? Well, I like community life, that's nice. Uh, I like the office, that's nice. I like the habit. That's nice. They go on and on. I say, well, you know, you haven't mentioned the magic words. And they say, well, what is, what's the magic word for religious life? I said, vow is the magic word. The, there's only one reason you could have for joining a religious community. And that's because you want to follow Christ perfectly by professing poverty, chastity, and obedience. Once you've decided that, then you can see if there's one community that will fit you or that will accept you. When it comes to the diocesan priesthood, the primary motivation there is apostolate, in other words, service of the laity, especially through the sacraments and um, mass. And you sh A person who doesn't like people, for example, or wouldn't want to say mass, they'd obviously be in the wrong place. So that's the way you discern things. You see what it is you're interested in, and then you identify that as either conforming to this way of life or not. Thanks, Mateo. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Three lines taken, three lines open at 833-288-3986. Uh, Jason is in Kalamazoo, Michigan, listening on iHeart Radio. And, Jason, you have a question that is going to speak to a lot of our listeners. You're on with Father Milady, Jason. Hey, Father. Uh, hi. I was wondering, hi. I was uh, wondering if, because um, Jesus said that if you look at your neighbor in anger, it's the same as murder. 
So I wondered if looking, if being angry at someone is a mortal sin. All right. Well, first of all, um, it depends on what the anger is about. It depends on whether the anger is righteous or not. It also depends on how strong the anger is in you that you would actually plot the death of someone. I have, uh, don't know if you ever read The Castle of Mondiado by Edgar Allan Poe. I used to read this to the students in the high school about anger. And it begins with the thousand insults of Fortunato I had borne as best I could. But when he ventured on, I forget what the word is, I, I vowed revenge. So this man during Carnivale, he confronts this man, Fortunato, who's dressed in a court jester's outfit, and he tells him he has this delicious bottle of wine, Amontillado, down in this basement, below Edgar Allan Poe's version. I mean, the way he looks on things, you practically go down to the center of the earth to get to this basement. And like once they're down there, he gets the guy drunk, and then when he's passed out, he bricks him up in a wall so he'll suffocate to death. And, and every brick he savors his revenge. And with the last brick, just as he's about to put it in, he hears the little bells tinkling on the court jester's outfit and he realizes the man's come too and is sort of realizing what is happening to him. And he has no compassion whatsoever. He just puts the last brick in. Now that would be very much an example of sinful anger. Because the idea is that you would murder a person if you could. Many of us, of course, fortunately don't have the opportunity to do that. Or we um, it's a short live thing in us where our anger is enkindled very strongly, but then it subsides very quickly too. But that, that's what it means. It means that a person has uh, developed their anger, and everybody has to have anger. It's a necessary emotion to defend yourself against evil. But a person has developed their anger about trivial things or even about important things to such an extent that they would actually will the death of the person with whom they are angry. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Tom is another first-time caller in Dallas, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Tom, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Milady. Yes, Father, thank you for taking my call. Good afternoon. Uh, afternoon. I'm, I'm currently in a Bible study, and... In this study, we were talking about the apostles. They've acknowledged Jesus as Son of God, uh, Lamb of God. But only the person leading this Bible study said only the apostle John knew that Jesus was also God. And I don't, I, I don't know when it was recognized that, that, that they recognized the Trinity as one and the same. Is that true? Uh, I've never heard that. I don't believe it's true, no. 
I think they all were had questions. The only person who avowedly recognizes Christ as Son of God is, of course, Peter. You know, you are, and that's why Christ says, you are my rock, Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and he gives him the ability to bind and loose. But, um, no, I, I'm not familiar with the idea that only John knows that. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate the phone call today there in Dallas, Texas. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Sue was wondering, what part of the soul survives after our body dies? How does it communicate with God when we no longer have a body? The whole soul survives. Uh, the intellect, the will, the passions of the body. And the communication is, and this is what heaven is about, this is why heaven is so wonderful, and it's all why, uh, also why it fulfills us and our desires for uh, happiness, that the eternal God, infinite and true, without concept in his essence, takes up and infuses our mind with divine and heavenly light. And that's how we communicate with God. And the soul, the whole soul survives. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Elizabeth wonders, since Mary was born without original sin... Was she capable of sinning? Well, that's a debate. Uh, Thomas Aquinas believed that Mary was capable of sin, even though she never did sin and didn't have original sin, until the Incarnation. And when Christ took up flesh in her body, from that moment on, she was what we would call confirmed in grace. And the only other, of course, the only other person confirmed in grace is our Lord. Remember, Adam and Eve could always sin, even when they were in that uh, that wonderful state they were in when they were created. Not Mary, uh, once she could not conceive Christ in her in her body. But there is a debate about that. I have a friend who thinks that she uh, returned to the state of the preternatural gifts as Adam and Eve had them before the sin, which I, I must admit I, I don't particularly accept. But the, the favors given to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the graces given to the Blessed Virgin Mary, are things that we could meditate on all day and also perhaps even dis disagree on in some cases. So be sure to join us tomorrow for all of our pro-life programming. It starts tomorrow, continues through Saturday. Tomorrow at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, we will bring you the closing mass of the National Prayer Vigil for Life, uh, live from the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., followed immediately by EWTN's live coverage of the 2023 March for Life, live from Washington, D.C., um, and then we will have some additional pro-life coverage at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Live. 
as well as 9 p.m. Eastern time on EWTN's Bookmark. And then on Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, we have the Life Issues special, No Woman Stands Alone, with Brad Mattis, the president of Life Issues, and a team of men and women. They share insights on the way we can support moms and their babies in this post-Roe world. And then at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the Walk for Life West Coast, followed immediately by One Life LA, live from San Francisco and Los Angeles, respectively. All of your pro-life headquartered programming right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Anne. She is in Palm Bay, Florida, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Anne, you are on with Father Milady. Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, our kids and I were wondering... Uh, the Church's teaching on the story of Adam and Eve, are we to believe that they actually existed, or is it more of a symbolism of the creation story? Uh, Pius XII defined in Humani Generis that a Catholic had to accept that the human race came from two people. And uh, now, that isn't to say that Adam and Eve as historical figures and the Adam and Eve discussed in the book of Genesis might have a further meaning. I don't think I would use the word fable or whatever, because it wasn't. It's truth, but it's truth on a higher level. It's metaphysical truth. John Paul II was very clear about this. He said that um, it was a primitive way of expressing philosophical truth. That's how he defined a myth. So he meant it was true on the level of philosophy. So, yes, you do have to believe that the human race began with a man and a woman, too. And, uh, by the way, also, before I ask her, I wanted to be sure, uh, the author I was speaking of about the Protestant Reformation is Rodney Stark. And his famous book, Yes, yes. Is bearing false witness. Very famous, yes. Hi, highly recommend to you. Go, go ahead, with oh, Anne. No. Anne, does that help your question there? That is a great answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sure. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Um, Jim is wondering, when police and military personnel need to kill in the line of duty is this a sin that can be forgiven or is it a sin at all all right following what i said before about the object of the act the direct killing of an innocent human person is what the object of the act is of murder and it makes it a sin against the fifth commandment and against the right to life and as a result a person who's killing a guilty person, now by guilt we mean, of course, seriously guilty of attacking human life, not guilty of stealing five cents, but guilty of capital murder or threatening capital murder, which would be the case of a policeman trying to defend someone, that uh, it's not a sin at all. Unless, of course, it's connected to personal revenge which goes beyond the issue and object. That has to do with the intention. (laughs) As I say, it's a little more complicated. It's quite complicated sometimes. But um, you can see this in wars in the past. There were famous, well, one of the most famous examples 
is during World War II, remember, Christmas Eve, I believe it was 1916, the Germans heard the uh, English singing Christmas carols, or the English heard the Germans singing Christmas carols, and they called off the war, and they just went and had a party between no, and no man's land, and then they went back to shooting each other the next day. <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't the personal, they weren't personally upset with these people. I mean, they were just defending their uh, territory or their comrades or, or whatever. So, normally speaking, if the war is just in any sense, killing in war is not considered to be even a, 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 not an evil, and it can be a good. It could be laying down your life for your friends sort of thing. And the same thing would be true of a policeman. Uh, next up is Richard. He is driving through the great state of Indiana listening to EWTN Radio today. Um, well, okay, we're going to hold on. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Richard as we speak. Um, in the meantime, we'll go to Art in Covington, Kentucky. He is um, listening to EWTN Radio today. Art, you are on with Father Milady. Yes, thank you. Um, I guess I'm uh, listening to uh, Sacred Heart Radio here in uh, Covington. Yes. Uh, my question is uh, around about birth control. Of course, the church is against uh, birth control. I was wondering, do they use a Bible uh, reference uh, to back up their teaching, or is it just the church? Um, uh, is it just the church uh, making a decision like that? Increase and multiply, subdue and dominate the earth. Comes in the book of Genesis. Right at the beginning. It has to do with God's command to Adam and Eve when he creates them. The, there doesn't need to be scriptural references for birth control. It was Birth control was something invented in the... Uh, actually, it began with the French Revolution about a way to control population. And that's what it became more and more uh, involved with. And then, of course, the pill was made it a light year sort of thing where at warp speed they could uh, preclude more children being born. And the whole idea is something which is the product of human engineering to try to socially engineer birth. And uh, Margaret Sanger and company, as you know, were uh, attempting to also eliminate certain races. They didn't like blacks at all. And the whole thing is a, a very feeble attempt on the empire of the Enlightenment to destroy what God said when he said, increase and multiply and subdue and dominate the earth. Thanks, Art. We appreciate the call. Now we'll go to Richard, who's driving through the great state of Indiana. Richard, you're on with Father Milady. Hello, hello, Father Milady. Hi. Uh, my my question has been answered a couple weeks ago or so, but I don't know if I heard the answer correctly. When does the Christmas season end? <laughs> oh my goodness! Another Christmas. Basically, its celebration ends with Epiphany. However, Epiphany, as you know, includes the baptism of the Lord and Canaan. And then, of course, you have uh, the Priest of the Presentation, 
uh, Mary, which uh, of the Lord, I mean, which uh, also the purification of Mary, and it's Candlemas Day. So if you wanted to be really, really strict and as as far as you can get, the ultimate boundary is Candlemas Day, February 2nd. February 2nd, that's right. Now you will notice, however, that you're wearing green when you celebrate Mass now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I would say that... Uh, Epiphany is probably when the Christmas season itself, Twelfth Night, what used to be called Twelfth Night, ends. Does that help, Richard, or are you more confused? No, that's fine. Thank you All right. very much. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call today. And um, um, real quickly here with the last minute or so we have left, Lane would like to know what the Catholic stance is on circumcision. Oh, we don't really have a stance on that subject. Circumcision is now just a physical ritual. It's not a religious uh, thing. However, um, when I was a boy, especially the Jewish doctors, they just did it by, just did it, period. Um, Nobody was ever asked or anything. And I think it was partially because they looked upon it as important for hygiene or that there not be problems involved in this. Supposedly, um, one of the big problems that caused uh, circumcision as an adult, for example, and this is now in our era, not it's Christ's time, was Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. They couldn't have relations. And finally, Joseph II made a secret visit from Austria and he convinced Louis XVI he needed to experience circumcision, which he, to his credit, did. And then they could conceive, they conceived their children after that. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon us and you and remain with you forever. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Life, Open Line. Be sure to check out our pro-life coverage tomorrow on EWTN Radio. Until then, God bless.